Welcome to another episode of New Covenant Conversations. I'm your host, Gary Elliott. I'm joined by my son, Stuart Elliott, as we continue our discussions about the New Covenant, uh, particularly as we have looked at an overview of uh, how God's pattern and practice of covenantal dealing is revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, We do want to emphasize that pattern and practice that is consistent and uh, it is progressive for us to know and understand God's way of salvation. Stuart, are you there? I am. Yeah. And uh, like you said, we have made our way through uh, the successive old covenant um, revelation of um, the different covenants in scripture or the different administrations of God's uh, covenants in scripture. Um, and we're now up to the new covenant. Um and we have a lot to talk about um, in terms of what this new covenant is, what's new about it, um, how does it relate um, to uh, God's covenant dealings with his people in the old covenant. Uh, so there's a lot here. So we should just dive right into it, I think. <laughs> okay. I do want to emphasize that we're at this point still doing an overview. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to kind of get the big picture before we go into the details, which are so rich and uh, really uh, edifying for us. So in time, we'll come back and pick up some other really um, interesting and I think edifying themes out of the study of the covenant. Hmm. But today we're talking about the new covenant and how it's revealed in the New Testament scriptures. I'd like to do a little bit of a review, though, to talk about the working definition that we are um basing our discussions around. Mm -hmm. Uh, We said there's not one uh, definitive sort of um, statement about covenant, but we have seen and been able to recognize these various elements that are consistently Mm -hmm. uh, demonstrated to us through Scripture. So the working definition that we're using is uh, God's covenant uh, has to do with His divine promises sovereignly administered uh, by the triune God, Uh, This is a covenantal pattern and practice revealed to us in Scripture. Uh, God's covenants are attended by blessings or curses. That has to do with covenant keeping or covenant breaking. And this is in connection with the expressed terms that are revealed to us in God's covenantal dealing. And then also uh, God's promises are ratified. They're put into force or activated, made effectual by an oath, witnessed with responding vows. And From this, we follow on with the seals uh, that are pledges of God's covenantal meaning. These pledges use natural signs to seal supernatural realities. And here is a large sort of sweeping uh, observation about the covenant and God's covenantal dealing. It starts out as non-bloody. It goes to a bloody administration, and then it comes with the new covenant, as we see today, to a uh, non-bloody administration again. And then the fifth and final element of the covenant pattern and practice. uh, Sorry, uh, we do have a little bit of a lag time, um, I'm noticing. But I I was going to say, so the the pledges then, um, the the pledges that that go along with, with... uh, the ratification of the covenant, um, one of these elements of covenantal dealings. You're saying that there's there's a progression there of 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 how those pledges um, come to us. So first, you're talking about 
in in the covenant with Adam before sin, before the fall, there's a non-bloody pledge, um, or or mm-hmm. I don't know what else. How else you say that covenant sign, covenantal sign? Yeah, um, all of the the promises, yeah, God's uh, blessings and curses, the ratification of yeah. God's oath. You know, to Adam and Adam's response yeah. to God, and yeah. then the sealing of that in terms of the pledges were were all non bloody, right? So, which is pretty significant when we get yeah. to after the fall. What happens in terms of then the yeah. bloody administration? Yeah. Uh, we start so, with Adam and God's clothing Adam and Eve with animal skins, with the you know the letting of blood, and then that carries yeah. right on through until yeah. Jesus says, uh, "This uh, I've desired to eat this Passover with you," and, yeah. and he ends it. Uh, with you know the non-bloody pledge, <laughs> right, 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 yeah, and, and um, with the cup, you know, this is my blood. Yeah. This cup of wine is my blood. It's not real blood. It's the pledge yes. of my eff- efficacious once for all bloodletting. So we go right. from non-bloody originally to bloody, occasioned by sin and death, to non-bloody, fulfilled in the person of Jesus as uh, our covenant pledge and mediator. Good. Okay. Good. Okay. Sorry. I interrupted there because I wanted to, I just wanted to, to look okay. at that for a few moments. So, all right, keep going. Yeah. Well, it's a sweeping overview, yeah. but I think it's pretty significant to yeah. uh, recognize it uh, in that way. But anyway, then the fifth and final element of the biblical uh, pattern and practice of covenant is that uh, with God's promises, there must be an engagement by faith mm. for future inheritance, or it's rejected by unbelief, mm. resulting in judgment. And we can talk about eventually, you know, that judgment can be temporal, but it's all in um, promise of even eternal judgment. Right. right. So that's the yeah. five elements of uh, the biblical revelation concerning God's pattern and practice. And we'll go back and start looking at those five elements uh, revealed to us in relationship to God's covenantal dealing progressively. Uh, But then also we want to to acknowledge um, the economy of the covenants. Again, in an overview that Mm -hmm. helps give us the big picture. Mm -hmm. So we have Adam pre-fall. This is often called the covenant of works, and while there is some dispute about that, uh, there's also reference to the covenant of creation, the covenant of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to get into the details of that, but I do think the covenant of works is very valid. Uh, It it, uh, emphasizes the working of love and worship Mm. and the offering of the bonus of the promise of life with creation ordinances and sacramental ordinances in the original mm. relationship uh, between God and Adam and the triune God and Adam. Sure. We want to emphasize yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, we also note that the Apostle Paul draws a parallel between Adam as covenant head. Uh, he was the uh, head of created humanity and that Jesus Christ as the new Adam mm. is covenant head of a new humanity right. in uh, Romans 5, the redeemed yeah. humanity humanity. So that's, I think, pretty well established and recognized. Yeah. Uh, then we recognize the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace addressing original sin by promises, terms, oaths, pledges, and prophecies of the new and better covenant. And that's where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to talk about today, how the new covenant is a better covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these themes orbit around the central reality of the Son of God as the mediator of the covenant of redemption. Okay. So we, in um, connect, making the connection to God's way of salvation and His covenantal dealing, we again present this overview. Adam after the fall, what does what God reveal covenantally? 
mm-hmm. of the covering of sin's guilt. Right. And then of Noah washing away sin's curse. Abraham, a special son of promise to substitute for sin's penalty. Mm-hmm. And then this, of course, connects with the idea that this was a promise. We have all the elements of the covenant, but of course, Isaac was not the true son of promise. He was right. a pledge, and he was a, a, a symbol, mm-hmm. um, a type mm-hmm. of the true son of promise who would come, as Paul says, of seed, singular, not of many, and of the true uh, substitute for sin's penalty. Mm-hmm. And then Moses, deliverance, passing over, passing through mm-hmm. from the power of sin's rule and law, the law curse that brings death. Mm-hmm. And then David, uh, forgiveness greater than sin's presence and authority uh, to forgive greater than sin's power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we'll elaborate and look more closely at God's dealing uh, yeah. covenantally in each of those episodes. So Dad, recognizing, yeah. Um, so as we're, as we're, um, kind of doing this review, um, it struck me as helpful to to once again uh, just kind of recognize where uh, this lands in in the in the big uh, overarching categories of covenant theology. Um, just just to make that clear, because so you have um, the covenant with with Adam before the fall, and then you have God's covenant of grace after sin. Um, after Adam's fall, after sin, you have the covenant of grace, which which is what these successive administrations with uh, with Adam and and uh, and with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David, that's where these administrations land in in that uh, in that administration or that category of of uh, of covenant, um, the covenant of grace. Um, and then you were you were also connecting that with the covenant of redemption as well. Um, so I, I just, as I, as you were running through that, it just struck me as, as helpful to, to, to have those categories in mind as well. Well, those categories deserve discussion. I'm hoping in another episode, we'll talk about covenantal theology and the Holy Trinity. Uh, there are some various views there yeah. and some disagreements or some ideas. Uh, I think it's important. And I think when we, uh, begin to sort that out, we can talk about the, uh, a compact of salvation, mm-hmm. uh, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption uh, relative to what is sometimes called the covenant of peace and how we understand the difference between the uh, essence of the Holy Trinity mm-hmm. and intertrinitarian relationship and the economy of the Trinity, which I would say was manifest to us through covenantal administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, we're back to the distinction between the creator and the creature mm-hmm. and the essential Trinitarian mystery and relationship, how that reflects in terms of creation as humans being God's image bearers and and God's dealing with his image bearers specifically as it relates to the incarnation, the eternal son of God coming into union with the human nature of the man Jesus and the God man being the only mediator of the covenant for our salvation and communion. Hmm. So those are very um, I guess you might say somewhat heavy mm-hmm. discussions, yeah. but they're accessible and they are very useful to keeping us, I think, on, on track mm. with understanding the grace of God um, and our communion with Him. Mm. Good. So recognizing these themes that they are replete throughout Scripture in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
the revealed covenantal progression should be acknowledged and appreciated as the key to understanding God's one and only way of, of redemption for salvation from original and actual sin. That's the big statement. <laughs> That's what we're yeah. talking about here. God's one and yeah. only way of redemption for salvation from original and actual sin. There are not many ways of salvation. Mm. And there is not salvation different for different peoples or mm. uh, different uh, groups or God's even covenantally. Uh, starting with Adam after the fall, there is one way of salvation. Uh, and we talked about the centrality of Christ as the mediator in all these ways. And that's why we come to the, the beauty and the astounding wonder of the new covenant. Uh, it wasn't that other efforts of God somehow failed or, or right. uh, God right. was trying different methods. It was right. all progressively being revealed to us for what is celebrated uh, in the new covenant. So yeah. this revealed covenantal progression leads to the meaning and the necessity of the new covenant as the fulfillment and the implementation of the kingdom of God and heaven. Now that might not uh, strike people uh, as it should, but I want to say it again. The revealed covenantal progression leads to the meaning and necessity of the new covenant as the fulfillment and implementation of the kingdom of God and heaven by the anointed Savior, Christ Jesus as the last Adam, the true ark of salvation, the true seed and son of promise offered as the sin substitute, the ultimate Passover lamb, the promised son of David, who is David's Lord and Savior, with divine authority to forgive sins on earth. Uh, this is what Mark starts out his gospel account with, that Jesus Christ, came, uh, Jesus Christ came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. And so right. the connection between uh, the new covenant and the fulfillment uh, and the revelation of the true meaning mm -hmm. of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, is connected. Uh, and I think that's very important, as we'll see as we go on. Uh, yeah. That raises a question, though, as, I, as I've studied covenant theology, and as you and I have discussed, and as you know as well uh, in the discussions about covenant theology, uh, there's a question that's raised is, why does it seem that new covenant as a term is sparingly used in the New Testament scriptures? Uh, right, yeah. And I, I think that yeah. that's a, a bit of a, a, a false dilemma. <laughs> right. Because yeah. the term yeah. new covenant is used significantly and definitively in the New Testament scriptures, and it's the basis for the gospel's new or newness theme. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I, I had hoped to talk a little bit about that this morning. Um, yeah. I don't know if you had any comments before we go on. So, yeah, so so that, that brings up the question of um, if that is such a significant element um, and climax and fulfillment, then, then like you were saying, uh, why does it seem as though the language is, is a bit more silent? Um, than we might expect um, in terms of of how often the New Testament talks about the new covenant. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to say that it actually speaks a bit louder about those things than you might first realize. <laughs> um, so that's a big question that mm -hmm. needs to get investigated. Mm -hmm. And then along with that, I think a, a significant question that we might get to today is um, we're talking about the new covenant that designation new, what are we getting at there? What's, what's really mm -hmm. new about it? Um, mm -hmm. And how is it new uh, relative to the old covenant 
Um, mm-hmm. Those those kinds of things are are big questions to to get at, and there there are questions that have varying answers depending on kind of what theological tradition you come from and how you approach the scriptures. So they're going to be those are going to be important ones to to mm-hmm. to di- to dive into. So um, so let's dive into that first one. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 term the new covenant. Um, sure. How how is it used in well, a significant way? Well, let, let me give you a short answer to all that you just said. The epistle to the Hebrews. <laughs> and I'm, of course, I'm hoping we'll eventually get to do an exposition of Hebrews in, in this course of conversations that we're having. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think uh, what I want to emphasize, too, is when we talk about New Covenant in the New Testament Scriptures, what I've said is that it is used uh, significantly and definitively. So, as you said, it speaks loudly. Uh, and also, there's trans- transition going on. And so, when we talked about covenant code words in the Old Testament, well, we can also talk about covenant code words and uh, themes in the New Testament, in the New, in New Testament Scriptures. Uh, I'd already indicated, I think, one of them, and that's the connection between uh, the New Covenant and the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of Heaven. Um, that is just huge. And I'm not sure is really appreciated as it should be. Uh, as we pointed out, not just the term New Covenant, but we have a, a theme, a gospel theme that is readily acknowledged, and that is the new newness theme of the gospel. Uh, a new person, a new creation in Christ, a, a, a new wine and new wineskins, a new name. Uh, all the newness theme of the gospel is based on the New Covenant. Um, now, some of the scriptures that are... are um, most obvious, of course, are the Lord's uh, Supper, the words of institution at the Lord's Supper. And I know that there's a textual variant uh, as it relates to in Matthew and, and Mark. Uh, some uh, texts have new covenant, some just have covenant. But, but it's very clear in the epistle literature, in Luke, and also in First and Second Corinthians and in Hebrews, the term new covenant is uh, unquestioned. And that also helps to inform the subject of, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, so whether you accept the textual variant uh, as just covenant or whether you accept the uh, majority text in terms of new covenant, uh, there can be no question in comparing Scripture with Scripture that that is the subject. And so those are important Scriptures. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was, was going to say, especially as you as you allow the the whole of scripture um particularly the pattern and practice that 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 we've been trying to establish in terms of pledges and oaths and signs um that go along with um these administrations of god's covenant dealing with man then it becomes uh, a a bit more uh strong of a case that this uh this institution um, of this visible pledge is really an institution of a new covenant administration, or mm-hmm. the actually the new covenant administration. Um, so, I think that's helpful, um, and why we've done kind of so much work at trying to lay that foundation of seeing the pattern as prophesied. That right, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the important thing too is that we have the five elements of the covenant 
clearly identified with Christ uh, in the New Testament scriptures uh, and in the you know elaborated on in the epistles uh, as fulfillment of the promise that God made, particularly the pro- the prophecy of Jeremiah. Uh, but more than that, I mean, there's more involved, but that's just uh, uh, makes it unquestionable. So there are no real disputes, at least biblically, about what the Lord's Supper is instituting, what Jesus is saying. Um, and there is a whole lot more, as you said, that speaks loudly in reference to the transition to the new covenant and how that... Um, is understood and applied and made effectual. Uh, so we, we can talk more about that. Uh, the second and perhaps most important, uh, I think, in this um, consideration is that the term new covenant is associated with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that's what I have indicated, I, I think, is not appreciated as much as it should be. And maybe even there's some dispute about it as we get into it. But the gospel accounts and the apostle Paul record the words of institution used by Jesus uh, to signify and to define the new covenant. Uh, as I already mentioned, we have that validated by the application uh, and connection between other scriptures, the, the writings uh, of the epistles and so forth, uh, recounting the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper. So there's no question that it's the, the new covenant. However, This is something I want to acknowledge uh, carefully, and that is that there is no textual variation for the next verse uh, in the following uh, of Jesus' words at the institution of the Lord's Supper when he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Uh, That's Matthew 26, 29, but it's uh, also recorded uh, in the other Gospels. So Jesus says, after... uh, Uh, He gives the words of institution regarding the covenant. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, speaking of the cup that he had just uh, identified as symbolizing his blood of the new covenant. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. And that's our same uh, word for new and newness uh, in relative to the new covenant. Until I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Now, remember Jesus refused the spiked wine uh, when he was on the road to the cross, when he was carrying the cross to Golgotha. He refused the spiked wine uh, that was intended to to numb the pain. But then on the cross, he did taste or sip the sour wine uh, presented by uh, the Roman soldiers. And so we we have that very clearly uh, narrated for us in Scripture uh, so Jesus obviously was not talking about, you know, literally not drinking wine because here he is. He refuses the spiked wine, but then on the cross, he does taste or sip the sour wine. And then he cries out with a loud voice in finishing uh, the accomplishment uh, as mediator and initiating the heavenly mediation that he would um, uh, follow through with. And so. We need to look then at Jesus' words. What does he mean? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, I know that um, this is commonly uh, uh, presented as an indefinite future uh, in terms of eschatology, that this will happen at Jesus' second coming at the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb uh, in reference to 
the end and the consummation. Uh, but but I think that that there is an immediate context here that does not satisfy putting that off. And so what I understand Jesus to be saying here, what I understand Jesus to be saying here is that I will be uh, eating and supping with you. I will be eating and drinking with you in a new way in my father's kingdom. And that's not put off to some indefinite end. That is in the now. <laughs> that you know, and so you know, Jesus appears to uh, them in the upper room. Uh, eventually, he ascends into heaven. But what he's telling us is, in a new covenantal way, I will be eating and drinking with you in my Father's kingdom. And so that's how I understand this point about our taking those pledged elements of the Lord's Supper with the words of institution and indicating to us a mystery about the kingdom of God that we have the real spiritual presence of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, the efficacy of his blood sacrifice, now removing blood and to a non-bloody commemoration and that there is a reality of communion that we have that is um, astounding. And of course, it also is new and better than the limitations of the old covenant believers in reference to their conscience. That's again, what the book of Hebrews really uh, focuses on as well. So here's one of the, the differences in terms of the new covenant, its newness and its efficacy. Not that we are more saved or more secure than old covenant believers were, but we have a fuller revelation and a greater appreciation, an intuitive witness of the Holy Spirit of God that focuses on the non-bloody accomplishment, uh, and it's, uh, it's not needing to be repeated. This, of course, begins to get into real disputes about Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, and how we're to understand it spiritually in a mystery that goes beyond uh, trying to limit that to some kind of literalism and corporality. So that's a, I think that's a, a really important distinction uh, to be made and to recognize the connection that Jesus makes between the new covenant and the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there's a beautiful section in the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, of the communion of saints, which uh, it's, it's chapter 26 of uh, the uh, 16... 46 edition of the of the confession it's a beautiful beautiful statement that we should uh, spend time in uh, commute the communion of the saints about the benefits that come to us through god's covenantal means and the refreshment and um the newness of the new covenant uh, and then there's a, a a third point that i think is important as well and that's the connection between the new covenant and the kingdom of god the kingdom of heaven with the church of Jesus Christ. And I think that is actually essential to the meaning of covenant theology's doctrine of the means of saving and sanctifying grace. Uh, this is where I want to go eventually with much more discussion because there's a dispute about what is the kingdom of God. Um, even among Reformed uh, believers in Reformed theology in different um, uh, schools and in, in, in different uh, traditions, uh, there are... Um, discussions or differences about what is the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of heaven. And what I want to 
uh, present and I hope will be considered is with a, a little catechism that I've often used, and that is of what is Jesus the head? Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? Jesus is the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the king? Jesus is the king of his kingdom, the church. Uh, that deserves a lot more consideration. It deserves consideration in the uh, different views, particularly that the, that the church is a part of the kingdom or a sphere of the kingdom. Uh, but I do not agree with that. And in reference to the new covenant, uh, when we come to better appreciate and understand the, the connection between the church and the kingdom of God, uh, that is reflected in the Westminster Confession very thoroughly. Uh, you can look at chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. You can look at chapter 25 of, of the church, in which it says uh, the church is the kingdom, the house and family of God, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, outside of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. It goes on uh, in the larger catechism. There are numbers of uh, questions and answers about uh, Christ as mediator, about his offices of prophet, priest, and king, about the application of the Lord's uh, Supper and the benefits that come to us through the new covenant, through the mediation of Christ, and through the headship uh, of Christ as king. Uh, and it makes a distinction between church, family, and commonwealth. Uh, so those uh, areas, I think, deserve um, more discussion and working through Scripture and understanding that the connection between the new covenant and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, with the church of Jesus Christ is essential to the meaning of covenant theology's doctrine of the means of saving and sanctifying grace, the benefits that come to us uh, in the liberation of our conscience and the fullness of the application of what Christ has done, is doing, and will do. And that there's a lot of uh, a lot of ground to cover <laughs> in, yeah, yeah. in those discussions. Yeah, absolutely. That was a um, that was a great overview. A lot a lot of stuff that um, that needs to be just talked about a bit more. Um, you know, and, and I'm not sure if you want. I don't think we'll be able to have the time to get into depth um, necessarily now about each of those, but they do, really do deserve a lot more attention. Um, the as you were talking about that second point uh, that the new covenant is associated with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and as you were uh, doing a bit of an exposition of of that uh, scripture of 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 Christ saying. Um, you know, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you uh, in my Father's kingdom. I think that's just uh, that's a great way of recognizing that relationship and the way that Christ Himself relates together the the newness of the new covenant and what the new covenant is affecting, and what and and it's it's being tied to the kingdom of God. Um, and as we think about uh, what it is that God is accomplishing in his uh, in his covenant relationship with his people, he's accomplishing since the beginning a way to set apart a people for himself, a special creation, image bearers, and also um, he he is accomplishing a way to be present with that people. Mm -hmm. So setting apart a people, uh, um, 
you know, as their sovereign, as their king, um, and setting setting apart a way of being specially present with them as more than creator, but as father, king, sovereign. Mm-hmm. And um, and you connected that in in what Jesus was saying there um, with the great fulfillment of of Christ's death and uh and resurrection um he he accomplishes that that great goal of all of god's covenant promises he accomplishes the setting apart of a people um and a way to commune with them truly in his kingdom and what strikes me is just incredible and how covenant theology really brings this into great glory is that that's something that god's people today enjoy in a true mm-hmm. way, in a mm-hmm. very true way. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure that that's um, understood and enjoyed by Christians the way it ought to be. I'm not sure we see our communion with God in those terms as much today anymore, mm-hmm. partly because um, you know, we're mm-hmm. not really brought in on the covenantal significance of these things and just how, how amazing they really are. And <clears throat> it brought to mind also this idea um, that I ran across, um, somewhere else. I can't remember where, but it was an analogy talking about, you know, the, the newness and the glory of the new covenant, um, doesn't, doesn't make God's work in, in the old covenant and all of his old covenant promises and pledges. It doesn't make those things not glorious. It, it's, it's, it's kind of like the sun coming out to shine. It doesn't make the stars disappear. Uh, you know, it doesn't make them non-existent. You know, the stars are still glorious, but you can't see them because the sun's shining so brightly, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And so mm-hmm. um, that's that's like what's going on with the fulfillment of the of the new covenant. It's the sun has risen, and it is now mm-hmm. outshining because of its glory. It's outshining everything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were just a few a few thoughts that I think are, there's a lot more there to really dig into um, Mm -hmm. and to bring out as a, as a benefit uh, for our Christian life today. Um, Because we are, if, you know, if you, if you're progressing in your sanctification as a Christian, you are battling and, and growing in, in, in your assurance of God's presence and his love and favor with you as father. Um, and this is one of the ways that he provides that assurance that he is true to his promise to you. Mm-hmm. He provides that in his glorious pledge of the new covenant, um, signed and sealed in the communion of, uh, of, of his table, um, the Lord's mm-hmm. supper. And, uh, and particularly as his word of promise is once again, provided to us in and through that. So one of the most meaningful, powerful, and comprehensive applications of the new covenant is the new way of worshiping God. Yeah, yeah. And that's another important theme. I mean, Jesus said to uh, the Samaritan woman, you know, God is seeking now those to worship him in spirit and truth, neither at Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. Mm. But now God is seeking people mm. everywhere 
to worship him in spirit mm. and in truth. And so the new way of worshiping God, and of course, that's an important part of the theme of the epistle to the Hebrews. It was a part of the mm. message of Jesus, destroy this temple, and in three days I will mm. raise it up. And he spoke of the temple of his body. Um, you know, Pilate says, uh, are you a king? And Jesus said, um, uh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, right. my subjects would fight. Uh, Peter mm. said, or Jesus said to Peter, do you not know I could call my of my father and request legions of angels? I mean, so there is a transition that is yeah. going on that is astounding and, as you said, more glorious. Right. Uh, not that there was not glory under the old covenant. That's right. But this is even more glorious because That's the right. Son of Righteousness has arisen with healing in his wings, mm. as was prophesied and declared of him in a promise of his birth. Yeah. So um, I, I hope and look forward to getting into more discussions. Before we get to that, though, we want to go back and look at the fullness of what is revealed in terms of God's covenantal pattern and practice of the old yeah. covenant that brings yeah. us up and builds up to that That's right. uh, crescendo, to that yeah. finale, to yeah. that um, you know exclamation point of the resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it, I think a, a good analogy might be to that. Um, we're talking about the 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 new covenant as, uh -oh, I think as I lost something you again. that's revealed as the fullness of glory. Well, to appreciate fully the fullness of glory, to fully appreciate that, you've got to know something about how the story builds to that climax. And so, therefore, we do need to go back and, as we've given this overview, um, almost like a Cliff Notes version of a story. You know, we're mm -hmm. going to go back mm -hmm. and we're actually going to. We're going to read the story the way it was intended so that we can fully appreciate the way it builds to its climax. Um, so we don't want to just skip to the end of the movie. Um, we, you know, uh, we want, we want to go and we want to fully appreciate why it is that this climax is so glorious. Um, mm -hmm. why, it, why it is so impactful for our Christian life. The best way to do that is to see and go back and appreciate the way that God uh, laid it all out the way that he um, he set um, he set in motion the the theater of his glory through his covenant dealings um, mm -hmm. with his people from 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 the beginning. So mm -hmm. uh, that was great. That was great, Dad. I really appreciated mm -hmm. that exposition of um, of Christ's words of institution. Well, let me interject there. something here, Stuart. Yeah. Let, let me interject another thought, uh, just okay. based on what you just said about the building of the story, uh, about the faithfulness of God, about the trustworthiness of God, about the knowability of God. That relates to the, the uh, revealing of the progressive development of the covenant. And at some point, I also want us to have a discussion about uh, the um, integrity of the covenant as is revealed in Scripture concerning sub-biblical and extra-biblical sources. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very important observation. We won't go into it in a lot of detail, but I think it's something very important that's germane to covenantal studies, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture, and not only the sufficiency of Scripture, but the reliability uh, of those covenantal episodes mm -hmm. and how uh, they are not to be uh, dismantled or, right. or tried to be jumbled up and uh, put back mm -hmm. together or are not depending on extra-biblical sources for the key to their meaning. Uh, I do want to have a discussion about that at right, some point. Right, right.
Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's really important. And, uh, and there's a, there is since at least the, oh, um, you know, some, sometime in the 19th century, I, I suppose there's been a consistent attempt at doing exactly what you've said. And it goes mm-hmm. beyond covenantal studies, but, um, uh, but certainly related to that, uh, but an attempt to uh, kind of rationalize, um, the, the scriptures away, um, deconstruct, yeah, uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, I think because the consistency of the covenant is so apparent, yeah. there has to be an attempt to dismantle it. Right. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that at another time. Yeah. 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 There's a lot there to, to talk about. Um, but I, I would, I would say that for those who accept the reliability sufficiency of scripture, um, that we can have all the confidence in the world that that is not an unfounded position that it's or not an ungrounded position um and so you know there there are things certainly to um to investigate and to learn about to 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 strengthen you know your 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 understanding of that and even your confidence in it um but you know for those who maybe haven't done that you can be very confident <laughs> that what we have in the testimony of Scripture is nothing less than God's word and uh, authoritatively given and given um, sufficiently um, to us. So, yeah, that's all all good stuff. Well, uh, like I was saying, um, that was very uh, there was a lot there that was just very good to be reminded of and to be um, uh, to be given in, in a new way, a fresh way. Um, you know, especially that, that section on, um, uh, Christ communing with his people, Jesus promising communion with his people in, 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 in his kingdom, um, and drinking the, the fruit of the vine new with us. Um, that's just good. That's really good. And I hope people are, um, assured by that and, um, and enjoyed that. Hopefully something to, uh, to chew on some more and talk about some more. So, I would like to make uh, one other uh, observation, and that is in referencing the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Standards, that is not an attempt to uh, put them over the Scripture, but rather to recognize how replete the Scripture references and phraseology is Mm -hmm. and how it's put together in such a consistent, knowable way in application, uh, even in the Catechism, question and answers. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish we actually had more time to to read sections of the Confession. Um, You would recognize in them phraseology from Scripture, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, references to the uh, fathers and the history of Orthodox Christianity Mm -hmm. through creeds and confessions, Mm -hmm. uh, compiled into the uh, confession so that if you're not that familiar, let's say, with um, the uh, fathers or with creeds or confessions, uh, but you recognize biblical phraseology and the uh, edition of the confession I have actually has all the scriptures printed out. Uh, at the bottom of the page. Mm, and it's mm-hmm. such a wonderful teaching yeah. tool. Uh, I wish I had even had opportunity today to um, quote from some portions of the of, of the confession because of its richness. And so I, uh, if folks mm-hmm. are not familiar with the confession, please understand it's a teaching tool. I often refer to it as yeah. a written sermon. Uh, you know, yeah. written sermons yeah. on the mediation of Christ, written sermons on the meaning of the mm-hmm. mysteries of communion with God, uh, written mm-hmm. sermons on the mystery of the Trinity, <laughs> you yeah. know. And so yeah. it's really worthwhile and valuable. Um, 
it's sort of like you said in, in the Cliff Notes uh, example. It gives us a yeah. <laughs> a compiled and um, compressed uh, sample mm-hmm. of what Holy Scripture teaches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. And and in keeping with, you know, some of what we've said about hermeneutics and the way we in- approach the interpretation and study of scripture, you know, we think it's really important to not approach scripture in an isolated way, as though the church hasn't said anything about it in the past or done any work of theology in the past or even that the spirit hasn't been involved in um in in bringing God's people to an understanding of his word. And so um we don't want to be biblicist in our approach to scripture. We want to be biblical and we also want to include the biblical ways that the church has thought about and talked about um the theology of scripture in the past. And that's one good way to do that. Look at the creeds and confessions of the church. Um, and the Westminster is, is up there as, as one of the clearest and best. So, all right. Thanks, Dad. Um, I think it's a good place to, um, to, uh, to say goodbye and uh, sets us up to, to get into some further discussion uh, for our next um, New Covenant conversation. Um, so unless you have anything else to add, um, we'll say goodbye until next time. Okay. Glory to God. Doxa theo. All right. Bye, Dad. Bye.